You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we'll hear from State Assembly Member David Chu, who is unopposed but running for re-election this year. We'll hear about his proposals to address homelessness and housing. This crisis is a crisis of our own making. We certainly have enough land in California to build the housing that we need. We can do it. And, and the reason we haven't is we have made choices, some active choices, many passive choices over the years, to simply just not build enough housing. And, and, and that's got to that's gotta change. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. David Chu is the state assembly member representing California's District 17, which encompasses mostly the eastern side of San Francisco. He was elected to the seat in 2014 after serving for six years as a San Francisco supervisor. There, he was the first Asian American to hold the seat of the president of the Board of Supervisors and the first person to do so for three consecutive terms. He's running for re-election to this seat unopposed, but he made time to talk with us from Sacramento to discuss his work and campaign. The top thing on a lot of renters' minds is that you managed to pass a pretty monumental change to rental law last year, AB 1482, which puts Mm -hmm. a cap on how much landlords can raise rents in a year at 5% per year plus inflation. And frankly, when we first heard about this, we thought it was a long shot, but it was passed and signed, and it's now in effect. And I'm hoping you could talk a little bit about getting the necessary buy-in from all the stakeholders in this and getting it across the finish line. Sure. Well, I have to admit, when we started the process as well, we thought, I don't know if we would have said it was a long shot, but we knew it was going to be a very difficult fight. And it was. But there were a lot of things that happened last year that created the window for 1482 to pass. First, the obvious, which is the housing crisis, the homelessness crisis, the eviction crisis, had and has reached such a proportion that my colleagues understood we needed to do something. And and Sacramento, our state capital, has been notorious for decades of not moving for protections for tenants who are struggling, who are vulnerable, and who have been on the verge of being evicted. Also, there had been a lot of discussions in the last couple of years of uh, between political housing stakeholders who had often been fighting on so many fronts uh, about how this crisis has necessitated us to be creative and to think differently and to think about how to get to an agreement rather than opposing everything. And I really want to credit not just the incredible tenant advocates and progressive and equity advocates and labor who have been fighting this battle for, 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 for many, many years, but also courageous leaders from the industry who were willing to say, listen, our industries can adapt to a world with a rent cap, can adapt to a world with just cause protections for evictions. Rather than everyone fighting us on all fronts, we were able to have very real conversations about how to how to balance the policy in a way that would protect tenants, but also allow landlords and small property owners and the apartment industry to receive a fair rate of return, how to make sure that we are providing just cause protections, but not disincenting 
incentives for uh, the building industry to build more housing. And we were able to craft a balance to make that happen. And that was only due to many, many conversations that happened along the way. And then I think the last thing I'll say is I really also have to credit my incredible colleagues, uh, both my fellow authors on the bill, that include Rob Bonta, Buffy Wicks, and Tim Grayson, as well as our leadership, our speaker, our, our Senate president, as well as Governor Newsom, who really leaned in at the right moment to help us get this over the line. Well, you mentioned homelessness, and I think no discussion would be complete without the mention of homelessness funding and programming for to serve people who are experiencing homelessness. And you recently introduced Assembly Bill 2329, which would mandate an analysis of all the homelessness programs throughout California. The idea here being to figure out whether existing funds are being spent effectively. And my understanding is the ultimate goal is to use that data to create a statewide plan to fight homelessness. Now, Governor Gavin Newsom focused almost his entire state of the state remarks on homelessness and essentially promised that the state would try to solve it. And in fact, he said he doesn't think homelessness can be solved. He knows it can be solved. So before we go into the details, generally, do you feel the same way about our ability to solve homelessness? You know, it's it's a fair question. We have, as a state, experienced intense levels of homelessness, not just in recent years, but for, for, for many decades. And it's a fair question to ask if we can solve it, if we can end it. But I would suggest this is a problem of our own making. There have been time periods in our state's history where we haven't seen the levels of homelessness that we have today. And the suffering that we're seeing on our streets, it's a function of many things, but it's a function in part of public policies gone bad, of institutions not working the way they should. And I am I'm an eternal optimist. I'm a public policymaker. I do believe that uh, good people uh, thinking responsibly, thinking compassionately, thinking really hard can come together and, and provide the solutions that we need. So I'm hopeful, but it's going to be incredibly hard. And there's a lot that we need to do. Uh, and uh, as you, you said, I have called for a statewide analysis of all of the billions of dollars that we're spending around the state trying to address homelessness. Uh, we know that many of those dollars are being put to good use, but there are questions about others and whether we're using our public resources as best we could. But part of the point of my audit and my analysis is also to ascertain what's the gap between what we are currently spending and what we need to spend to substantially address homelessness and hopefully end homelessness. And there are arenas in the homeless context where we have made significant strides uh, when it comes to veterans homelessness, when it comes to, to family homelessness. There have been decisions made in cities across California that are making good headway in that, but obviously there is tremendous chronic homelessness and there are so many people every day who are newly homeless and we've got to think of new policies to address their plight. Yes, actually, if I understand correctly, the number of people who become homeless in the state is outpacing the number of people that were able to get off the streets and to house. So how do you even begin to make a system more efficient when the problem is just rapidly outpacing the solution? It's, it is daunting. I mean, just to give you a sense of how daunting it is, every night of the week, there are over 150,000 Californians who do not have shelter, who are homeless. And, and just take L.A. alone. L.A. has done a remarkable job of housing 133 people a day. That sounds like a good number until you compare it with the fact that it's estimated 150 residents in that part of our state are becoming homeless. But then compare that to Oakland, 
where for every one person that's being housed, two people are becoming homeless. Or my own city of San Francisco, where it's estimated for every one person who, who is being housed, three people are becoming homeless. Now, the solution everyone understands is, is multifaceted. It depends on the causes for your homelessness and what's sort of driving it. So I would say, you know, there are a number of different categories we have to think about. There are what we need to do to address folks who have significant mental health challenges, opioid or other addictions on the streets. We know that the best solution for those individuals is to provide wraparound services with permanent supportive housing to deal with individuals who are chronically homeless. But we also know there are a ton of folks who are homeless or becoming homeless who do not have mental health issues, who do not have addictions to uh, substances. And, And for those individuals, many of them are homeless because one, we have a tremendous housing shortage. So simply the fact that we do not have enough roofs over people's heads, that rents are so damn high, that home prices are out of reach, the lack of a supply of housing requires us to figure out how to build an awful lot more housing at all income levels faster. But also related to that, the widening chasm of income inequality is driving homelessness as well. It used to be when everyone could afford to make a good middle class uh, wage and be able to live in a good middle class existence, that is in significant jeopardy in the wealthiest regions and the wealthiest state in the wealthiest country in the world. And that is certainly uh, certainly the, the part of California that I live in. And the fact is we have hundreds of thousands of residents who, again, do not have mental health issues, do not have any addictions to substances, do not have what people think of in their minds as sort of the stereotype of someone who's homeless on the street, but may have one minimum wage job rather than the two or the three minimum wage jobs it, it takes to afford a median rent in high cost areas like Silicon Valley or San Francisco or San Jose. And for those individuals, we, we've got to think about this, this differently. They don't need medications. They don't need therapies. They need income stability and they need assistance in dealing with the fact that 40% of all Californians can't afford a $400 emergency hit to their savings in any particular month. And so different set of solutions required for those individuals. Yeah, it sounds in that case like you're not so much talking about solutions to homelessness, but really prevention. I mean, there are programs that have been tested in places like Oakland, for example. I believe their program is called Keep Oakland Housed, where um, the city can step in if somebody is sort of on the brink of homelessness. And in fact, I I believe you um, proposed a bill that would have codified a right to housing for children and families. And this bill did not succeed, but it would have offered um, rental and legal assistance to families also on the brink of homelessness. Um, where do you think the conversation about prevention needs to go? The the prevention conversation, it's interesting. It's a relatively new conversation in the policy spheres. In the last couple of years, we have been seeing individuals who in any other time period in our state would not have become homeless. But again, today, one minimum wage job is not enough. In many instances, two minimum wage jobs are not enough. Those are the folks who are most at risk. And there are prevention programs to do things like helping someone if they have an emergency cash crunch in the middle of a month, or they have a medical emergency, or their car breaks down, to give them a little bit of financial assistance so that they can continue to live in their home where they've been living for years. Those types of prevention measures are just as effective as thinking about the permanent supportive housing that someone who is 
chronically homeless needs to do. And you point to some examples in, in Oakland, there have been nonprofit providers working with Mayor Libby Schaff and uh, the city of Oakland that have been very effective at helping to keep people housed in, in place. And we need to replicate these solutions. Now, you, you mentioned a, a bill that I am helping to author along with my Los Angeles colleague, Otto Burke, that would establish not the right to shelter per se, but the idea that everyone in California should have the right to housing. And this particular bill says that that should be particularly true for families, for women and children. I see a light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to family homelessness. Our numbers, they're, they're certainly not where they need to be, but we can manage this. We can devote the resources in such a way that I think we can end family homelessness if we set our minds to it. And this is why Autumn Burke and I and others have articulated this idea that just as in our state we say that people have a right to education uh, or, or people have a right to, to clean water, families, women and children uh, should not be exposed to the elements, should have a right to some sort of, of housing, whether it be a shelter, but, but hopefully whether it be more permanent housing, that's the goal of where we're trying to go. Do you think that concept is starting to really take more hold? I mean, I think that a lot of people consider housing to be a human right, but there is some controversy around that idea, mostly by people who argue, well, it, it's a right, but people don't necessarily have to live here. But this bill would have said it outright. Children and families have a right to housing. Do you think that's going to take hold and, and sort of uh, influence policymaking in the future? I think it has to. Homelessness, housing, these are the moral questions of the day. Are we going to continue to walk by our neighbors, our brothers and sisters who are suffering, who are dying on our streets? We, we've got to do something different. And, and particularly when it, comes to, uh, when it comes to our kids, when it comes to families, when it comes to single mothers, we need to do more. We need to do better. And when you pair it with the reality that this crisis is a crisis of our own making, we certainly have enough land in California to build the housing that we need. We can do it. And, and the reason we have it is we have made choices, some active choices, many passive choices over the years to simply just not build enough housing. And, and, and that's got to that's gotta change. We'll get back to this conversation with State Assembly member David Chu in just a moment. You've been listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. KSFP and the San Francisco Public Press are supported by listeners like you. Learn more about our membership program and join the public press at sfpublicpress.org donate. You can make a donation online or send a check to the San Francisco Public Press, 44 Page Street, Suite 504, San Francisco, California, 94102. Thank you, and thanks to the hundreds of other public press members who have made our work possible for 10 years. Let's hear more from State Assembly member David Chu, who spoke with us from Sacramento about his legislative record. So my understanding is that California as a state relies on emergency allocations to fund programs to end homelessness, rather than having sort of a, a permanent program in place um, to continually funnel funding towards state programs to assist people who are homeless. Uh, can that change? Does it need to change? How would we even start? You know, you're asking really good questions today because you are entirely correct that as a state, we have never provided an ongoing source of funding to address homelessness. In the last couple of years, we've had budget surpluses 
And in the last two budget years, we have made the decision to take portions of our budget surpluses, a half a billion dollars two years ago, $650 million last year. This year, the governor has proposed at least $750 million to take a portion of our budget surplus and address homelessness. From my perspective, that's a start, but we really need to provide cities and counties and regions all over the state with an ongoing permanent source of funding for homelessness until we have seen a significant drop in our numbers. And we need to do this because local jurisdictions, they can't figure out what they're going to do longer term without knowing that they're going to have an ongoing source of funding for the capital infrastructure that they need to build shelters and navigation centers and permanent supportive housing, as well as to provide the ongoing services that we know a good percentage of our homeless uh, communities need. And so I have proposed, the very first bill I proposed this year would establish a permanent source of funding for homelessness in the state of California for the first time. I was very gratified that Governor Gavin Newsom in his State of the State address reiterated that he thinks we need to have a conversation on an ongoing source of funding. I have proposed a way to achieve that funding uh, through a reform of our state mortgage interest deduction. There are other ideas that I'm open to, but at the least, I think, again, the idea that we're, we live in the wealthiest state in the country and there are 150,000 folks who literally do not have shelter over their heads and are exposed to the elements, it's just not acceptable in uh, 21st century California. And where would the money come from that would go into this fund? So my proposal is that we tweak the mortgage interest deduction. The mortgage Can interest deduction- Can you explain what that is? <laughs> yeah, so um, if you are fortunate enough to own your home, you receive tax benefits, uh, effectively tax breaks from both the federal government and the state of California to own your home. And it's it's fairly significant. In fact, the, the largest unspoken housing financing program in California is the mortgage interest deduction. It's estimated Californians receive about $8 billion a year in tax breaks from the federal government and from the state government related to the mortgage interest deduction. The problem with the MID, the mortgage interest deduction, is it's it's very regressive in that in order to benefit from this tax break, you have to have a couple hundred thousand dollars that you've been able to save to purchase a home in the first place. And that is only possible for, unfortunately, not the largest subset of Californians. Now, it turns out in California, you receive a federal and a state tax break for the home you live in. But if you are fortunate enough to not just own one home, but you own two homes, and in fact, your second home, if it's a vacation home, you also receive a federal and a state tax break for that second home. So again, let's say you own a home in my city, San Francisco, and you're fortunate enough to own a second home in Tahoe or Malibu or Palm Springs. You get four tax breaks. And what I am proposing as part of this proposal is that we phase out the state mortgage interest deduction on second typically vacation homes. Because I think before we subsidize tax breaks for a very small fraction of Californians to be able to afford a second vacation home, we ought to spend our scarce public dollars making sure that everyone has at least one roof over their heads. We've just talked a lot about homelessness. I want to switch gears and look at some other policy areas as well. California became the second state in the country to allow for the creation of a public bank. 
thanks mm-hmm. to a bill you co-authored. And the idea behind public banks is to divest public money from private Wall Street banks and instead let local jurisdictions provide capital for projects in the public interest. San Francisco is hoping to move ahead toward creating one. What steps do municipalities need to take in order to actually start a bank? So a little bit of, of context. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in recent years, probably for the past 15 or 20 years, there's been a conversation about the failure of the largest and in many instances, fairly predatory Wall Street banks that take public dollars uh, from cities like San Francisco, Los Angeles. Every city in the state of California invests large portions of their cash reserves in the largest banks in the world that are located in New York on Wall Street. And rather than these Wall Street banks taking those monies and investing them in our communities, they turn around and invest our public dollars in industries that are antithetical to our values as Californians, uh, with gun manufacturers, in private prisons, in fossil fuel companies, in companies with bad labor practices. And at the same time, these same banks are responsible for the mortgage foreclosure crisis, the predatory lending crisis, the student loan crisis, the lack of access to capital by small businesses. They're not serving the needs of of California consumers and the California public. And so I was asked over a year ago by what has been a very significant movement to consider public banks to pass a law in California to allow cities to apply for a charter for a bank that would be effectively a community-run bank with accountability to the community that is running the bank where cities could park their money. And I can tell you there are cities across the state that are looking at this, not just San Francisco, but uh, but in the East Bay and Los Angeles and Long Beach and San Diego. There's a lot of interest in thinking about a new financial model. And as you put it, this is not the first time that an American state has considered this. In fact, the Bank of North Dakota recently celebrated its 100-year anniversary and uh, it has had decades of, of success. And coincidentally, the history that led to the formation of the Bank of North Dakota in 1919 uh, was not dissimilar to the circumstances that our public has been experiencing vis-a-vis certain Wall Street banks. On the topic of finance, um, and I've asked every candidate that has come through um, to speak with us on Civic here about this. Uh, Your campaign so far has raised more than $740,000. Top donors include labor unions, the teachers union, several construction companies, a Bay Area real estate developer. I wonder if there are any groups or individuals that you do not seek or would not accept campaign donations from. Oh, there are are many. I wouldn't take money from, say, gun manufacturers. I have not taken money from the tobacco industry, from big oil. I've not taken money from PG&E, et cetera. You know, certainly where money's come from, I think, do reflect your values. And, 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 And as I just said, that is reflective of my values. I want to ask about something that I think commuters will be very excited about um, as this developer uh, as this develops. You have introduced a bill that would establish one universal bus fare across the Bay Area, make <laughs> discounts standardized across agencies, and this proposal also includes a combined transit map and departure time reference and a provision for a consulting team that would look for ways to make transit across the Bay Area actually seamless, like, for example, with schedule alignment across systems. 
First of all, before we talk more about what's in this bill, how did we end up like this? How did we end up with a disjointed system where there is a joint platform in Millbrae where BART and Caltrain both stop, but the schedules don't reliably line up? How is that possible? It's a great question. You know, as someone who has spent most of my life on public transit, I experience what every transit rider in the Bay experiences, which is incredible frustration all too often. That is a function of the fact that we have 27 transit agencies that have developed over the decades that are not connected and do not provide a seamless experience. We have the worst congestion experience as a region in the Bay Area next to Los Angeles, and yet we have devoted billions of dollars into public transit and transportation systems that that just don't work together. And so I have proposed a bill to move forward a vision of a Bay Area seamless transit system where the 27 transit agencies would be required to figure out how to work together. Because the reality is, as you've put it, you have 27 different transit agencies with different fare structures, different schedules, different physical connections, uh, different plans as far, to the, as far as expansion and infrastructure. And there are so many things that are lacking, including something as basic as a regional transit map. I often say that the experience of transit riders is not dissimilar to thinking if you're driving a car and you're driving between freeways, if you had to switch your app every time you switched a freeway, if you're going from the 101 to the 380 to the 280 and you literally had to change apps, <laughs> that is the experience of a transit rider because you have to get on the Caltrain app and then you have to get on the Muni app and then you have to get on the AC Transit mm-hmm. app to figure out how to go from place to place. And so what our bill calls for is there are, there are things like you just enumerated, that should be low-hanging fruit, that all transit agencies have said, you know, Chu, we would like to figure out a common bus fare so that rather than if you have to connect three times, rather than paying three full fares, which is a huge disincentive for someone to take that trip, let's just have a common bus fare or let's take discounts. If you are a low-income resident, if you're a student or a senior, every system has different discounts and we have to figure out how to streamline that. Or something as basic as making sure every transit system can produce for the public real-time data on their schedules and when buses and trains are arriving and making that transparent so that we can take that data and do something with it. That's a simple goal of what we're trying to do. And there are other regions in the world that had as fragmented and disjointed a set of transit systems as we do, and they have figured it out. And all I'm saying is, in the 21st century Bay Area, we pride ourselves on our innovation. We are woefully behind on creating a transit system that will transport people more than the 3% of Bay Area trips that are taken by transit. 97% of trips are not taken by transit. And again, with billions of dollars of investment in infrastructure and operating expenses, that is not acceptable. So I'm curious why, you know, not that it's necessarily a bad thing that you did, but why you decided to bring the state into this? Because don't we have a regional transit authority? Don't we have regional governing bodies? What's the state role, the state's role in in implementing this regional transit system? That is a great question. I think everyone will recognize that while there are some governance institutions and there are conversations that happen between these transit agencies, the change hasn't happened. And I think there's an appropriate role for the state to nudge the transit operators and, and regional bodies to do a better job here. If transit were actually seamless in the Bay, there would be no need for a state conversation, but, but it's not happening. And so we have an obligation, particularly since 
the state is a huge funder of these transit and transportation systems to make sure our monies are being well spent and the public is being well served. You've proposed a lot of other legislation, too, that we unfortunately won't be able to get to today. But I want to highlight a couple things. You've introduced a bill that would enable transgender and non-binary college graduates to receive diplomas with their accurate names on them. You've co-authored a resolution formally apologizing for the forced removal and incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. You've moved to maximize public funding for special needs dental clinics, just to name a few. What thoughts do you want to leave voters and constituents with as they head to the polls? Well, those of us who are honored to represent our constituents, and in my instance, that's a half a million San Franciscans in the incredible city of San Francisco, we have an obligation to address the needs and challenges of our communities as they exist at this moment. And at the moment, from protecting renters and building affordable housing to dealing with congestion and improving transit to protecting the civil rights of our LGBTQ communities, our immigrant families, women, others who are under assault every day by our so-called president leading the Trump administration. This is what I've been focused on. And it's been an incredible honor to work with so many of my constituents and my colleagues in Sacramento to move forward bold and innovative ideas. This is, the, this is not a time for us to, to, to lean back and shirk our responsibilities. We've got to lean in and do the hard things that we need to do to address the needs of the day. There are many amazing things that are happening in San Francisco and in California, but but uh, but there are also lots and lots of things that are not happening. And, and that's what I view as, as my job and my calling. And uh, it's been an honor to represent in the California State Assembly. Well, Assembly Member Chu, thank you so much for talking with me. I appreciate your time. You've been listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. 